This is the Bike Snob of New York City, and you're listening to The Bike Show on Resonance FM 104.4. Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Now, if you're a long-time listener to the show, you'll probably know by now that I'm a sucker for the history of cycling and for history in general. I'm one of those people who believes that you can't understand where you're heading unless you know where you've come from. And I also find it fascinating just to find out more about the past and how people lived their lives long ago and not so long ago and how things have changed since those days. So it gives me great pleasure to be joined in the studio by Dr John Law, who's a research fellow at the Department of Social and Historical Studies at the University of Westminster. And John's latest book is The Experience of Suburban Modernity, How Private Transport Changed Interwar London. Welcome to The Bike Show, John. Hi, Jack. Hi. John, you're an expert in the interwar period, the 1920s and 30s. It's a fascinating time, that isn't it because it's it's just within reach only just of living memory but it's sufficiently long ago to be really quite different from how we live now yeah no i'm fascinated by the interwar period i'm particularly interested in the 1930s and most of my research is focused on uh, the wealthier people uh, in the 1930s uh, many of whom have lived in london and the southeast the sort of people who escaped the, the worst uh, excesses of um, the recession and the, the slump of the late 20s and early 1930s. So what interests you about, about their lives? The, are they, were they gilded lives or are they just sort of well-to-do middle-class folks? We're not talking about the aristocracy here. No, 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 no. We're talking about the sort of people who started buying cars. That's where my interest has started in this, in this field. Why did people, how many people had bought cars? And I sort of came to bikes, cycles, sort of accidentally after that. But what really gets me about them is how modern their lives were. And in a snapshot, that's my thesis, really, that um, because we think of uh, the 1920s and 30s because of the Depression, so we either have that sort of Downton Abbey aristocracy thing going on or everyone's starving and marching on London. But in, in reality, uh, life wasn't like that at all for those people who lived uh, in work in the southeast. They were prosperous, wealthy, and spending a lot of money on consumer items and were very interested in things like being in private transport and travel and flying and cars. And it's only really because of the uh, arrival of the Second World War. We have sort of, you know, Neville Chamberlain in 1938 and those sort of images and the Blitz. We sort of, that period immediately before the Second World War has been a sort of uh, lost. I see it my job is trying to recover it. So how were people getting around in those days and what changes were, were underway in, in the way in which people moved from place to place? The cliche for suburbia, which is the, one of the areas I'm, I'm very interested in, the standard picture was that, was that suburbia was created by the train and that people were tied up in a sort of rather desperate relationship with the train and that they had they led empty lives in the suburbs and they travelled every morning into London and then back again every evening by train. And that, So suburbia and the train were sort of interlocked with each other, you know, in a rather nasty codependent relationship. What I've tried to show is that um, uh, independent private transport was far more important to people than uh, the, you know, the sort of clichéd view of suburbia would, would, would have, have us know, which is that uh, the car, the motorcycle, and very much the bicycle you know, were key elements in people's um, mobility in the 1930s. How many people were cycling? How, what, what, what do we know about 
cycling rates at that time? Very hard to say, really. It's um, uh, sort of various estimates for the number of cycles in the country at about six to eight million during the 30s. I would say that, that probably, you know, at least every other house would have a, or maybe most houses would have a bicycle of some sort. So it would be quite a cheap and easy thing for people to buy, particularly the kind of people you're looking at who are the sort of well-to-do middle classes. Oh, yeah, I know. And uh, cycle adoption went right down into the working class and into the lower middle classes because um, the price effectively halved in the 1930s at a time when people's real incomes were going up. The benefits of mass production allowed uh, bicycle prices to come right down. At the same time, people's incomes were going up. So it was very easy to better buy bikes for, for kids and um, for the whole family. So you divide cycling in, in, in the chapter on cycling in your book into day-to-day utility cycling, getting to work, getting to the shops, that kind of thing, and recreational cycling, going for a ride out into the countryside, um, which is you know, a pretty sensible way of approaching it because they are quite different activities, although I suppose in some cases the same people would do both one during the week and one at the weekends. But let, let's, let's start with um, transport cycling, utility cycling, getting to work. I was quite surprised you cited some survey research that found that only 6% of people travelling to work did so by bike in the 20s and 30s, which... That seems quite low to me. I mean, were they all travelling by car or were they all on the train or were they walking or were they no, on a bus? Or how are people... If, they, if, if this is the sort of boom time in, in, in cycling, how come it's only 6%? Yeah, no, it does seem low, doesn't it? So it seemed low to me. I mean, this is research conducted at the University of Lancaster over a period of about 15 years. So it's, a, it's incredibly detailed and comprehensive research. So have to take it seriously. But it does seem a low number. Um, the vast majority of people were on public transport. Uh, I guess cycling gear is a little less sophisticated back in the, the 30s. So, you know, a combination of that and our climate meant that, um, you know, cycling to work uh, wasn't attractive if you could go on the bus or on tram or on the train. But if we look across the, um, across the North Sea at the Netherlands, mm. there were lots of people cycling there for every purpose, um, getting to work, getting to the shops, that was a big cycling place and you know, they had the same weather. Was there something about Britain that, that meant that people weren't cycling to work so much? Or was it the distances involved because London's this great metropolis? What's going on here? Well, I think that the uh, London has uh, had an intensely developed uh, public transport system by the, the middle of the 19th century. And that, you know, it got more comprehensive. That, I think, is mostly the explanation about why people didn't cycle to work because there were alternatives. Where there weren't, if people were working-class cyclists, who locked on sort of large council estates which didn't have tram services or bus services or weren't near a train station, they would cycle. And they would cycle um, extraordinarily long distances, you know, 25, 30-mile return journeys uh, each day in order to be able to find work. And what kind of um, roads were they cycling on? They were cy- accessing the main roads? Um... Yeah, they were cycling on a road, what we think of as A roads now, and um, uh, arterial, arterial roads, dual carriageways. And the surfaces were very mixed. Some were concrete, some were tarmacked, some were wooden sets, and some were cobbles. You know, so uh, you got a bit of a uh, bumpier ride than you would expect today. That's for certain. These days, when we think about cycling on main roads, we don't like the idea that there's loads of cars, there's loads of heavy goods vehicles. But there's a lovely anecdote that you um, describe in in the book um, of cyclists crowding behind a passing lorry on a on a main road in order to get a draft and be and be pulled along by them. I mean, it sounds as though if you know you're waiting for a lorry that you can all jostle behind to to, to get behind that there weren't that many lorries on the roads that. The roads were much emptier in those days. Do you get that impression that roads are much emptier? Yes, they were. I mean, it's uh, there were about uh, two and a half million vehicles on the roads in 1938. 
So uh, about probably about 10% of what there are now. There's a sort of cliche of uh, interwar history, which is particularly in oral history, where people say the streets were empty of cars. You know, you could play football all day and kids and, you know, so, but the reality was there, were, there was quite a lot of dangerous traffic. And it's seen in the accident figures. There were 6,000 car deaths every, every year in the, 19, in the late 1930s. And that's about triple what there are today. Exactly, yes, with 10% of the number of cars. So it's 30 times, 50 times more dangerous to get into a car. And most of the accidents, a lot of the accidents involve cycles, uh, bicycles. So effectively, you get this, uh, you get this idea of um, young, wealthy car drivers killing young or elderly uh, cyclists. So there's a sort of class thing and a, an age thing going on, going on in the accidents on, on the road. So they, they were quite dangerous. I mean, Britain was, maybe still is, a class-ridden society. You must have looked into perceptions of different modes of transport in the people that you're looking at, you know, whether to ride a bicycle was uh, seen as something, oh, I wouldn't want to do that because um, it's not good for my uh, image, my status. How did people regard the car and how did people regard the bicycle and, and I suppose the motorbike as well? Right, yeah, they all have uh, different connotations. Uh, the car was the, was for a middle-class person, was the, the ultimate you know, sort of status aspiration. It was a status symbol in the 30s, and in the same way we tend to think of it in the 50s and 60s, where people got you know, four Cortinas for the first time. To have a car, and if you lived in the suburbs, really marked you out as someone who's, who had made it in life. But even like today, that uh, didn't mean you had to have the money. Uh, a lot of cars were bought on higher purchase in the 30s, although it's quite shameful to have to use instalment credit to buy a, uh, a car. You could do it by buying it in central London anonymously and then taking it back to your suburb. You didn't have to go to the local garage and then have people whispering about you. Always you got it on the never-never. Yeah, got it on the never-never, yes, which is very, very bad taste. Um, so cars were the biggest um, status symbol. Motorcycles were very declassé in the 30s. And there's, you see a lot of commentary about um, people wouldn't want to be seen on a motorcycle because they'd be seen as dirty and noisy and loud and not respectable. Uh, cycling transcended all those class barriers and that people of all classes would cycle for recreation, but only probably working class people would cycle as a means of uh, getting to and from work. So the middle classes had already given up utility transport cycling by the 1930s in, in, in suburban London? Yeah, that's mostly true, but it's not true for women. It's a very gendered aspect of car driving, is, is that um, we're not entirely certain how many women had driving licences. We think about 15% of total licences were held by women by the late 30s. All the records were destroyed when they moved to, um, when they centralised all the offices down in Swansea, which is un unhelpful to historians. But we know from uh, the way that women describe their driving in their diaries and, and letters to papers is that when their husband was around, he would drive. That was almost universal, that a woman would only drive when her husband wasn't uh, around. And so they were much more reliant on bicycles for, for uh, personal transport than we'd expect, expect them to be. So a middle-class woman quite often would, would cycle to the shops because she didn't have the car because her husband was using it or didn't feel able to use the car. So 80, anyway, 85% of women couldn't drive at all, so, um, and they weren't going to use a, a motorcycle because only 3.5% of all motorcycle licences were held by women. So the choice was walking or cycling, really, so it's going to be cycling. Because by the time we get to the 1970s, you know, people who are riding a bike are either poor, eccentric or banned from driving. Um, that's, that's definitely the, the, the view that there was by the 70s, the great extinction of, of, of cycling in Britain. But by the 1930s, mm. 
that hadn't yeah. happened at all. You know, yeah, they, they wasn't regarded as the as the poor man's transport and something to be avoided um, if if you if you possibly could. It was it was just a, 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 an accepted, normalised way of getting about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, if you were a sort of active um, middle class woman, you you'd just get on your bicycle to um, go down to the shops or visit a friend, and that was uh, uh, completely normalised. And it presumably wasn't very dangerous to do that. So that's transport cycling, getting around, utility cycling. How about recreational cycling during this period? Yeah, one of the, one of the great things about the 30s was, its fasc- was the society's fascination with um, the countryside. Now, his- historians put this um, particular phenomenon down to an attempt after the horrors of the First World War to try and bring back a sense of deep England. You know, that, that England, and they tend to use the word England when they meant Britain as well, but we'll, we'll use the term they used, that... Uh, that to be English was actually to be connected with the countryside and that, um, you know, urban modernity was somehow alien alien for an Englishman. And so as a way of recovering from the horrors of the First World War, which were quite recent, you know, were very much within living memory for, uh, for most of the people around the 1930s, they felt a need to uh, reconnect with the countryside. And you would see that evidence in large-scale uh, cycling expeditions to the countryside and also hiking as well. Um, which is you know, a, a big thing and very much connected with cycling. You can see that in the Clarion Clubs, where they both did rambling, hiking, this is cycling. The, this is the outdoors movement exactly, of the interwar yes. period. That's right. Which is um, and that was one of the so that was the great one of the things you did if you had a cycle would um, to be go out at the weekends uh, with friends or as part of a club ride out uh, to explore the countryside. Partly, it's something to do with uh, the changing demography of the 30s because the establishment of a new ring of suburbia around uh, the large cities not just London, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow as well. So you get this new ring of 1930s called semi-detached suburbia. But, you know, you know, it's not all semi-detached, but, you know, we're talking about when you, when you describe it like that, that outer ring. And that was, that was adjacent, and certainly in London, to large areas of countryside. So if you wanted to go for a cycle ride on a, on a pleasant uh, Sunday in 1936, you know, you could cycle into town, I suppose, but it's easier to get out into the countryside uh, and quieter roads um, going the opposite direction. And did we have the green belts around the major conurbations at that point or were they something that came later? It came a little bit later in the 30s, but, uh, uh, you know, so in fact the reality of a green belt was really more felt in the 40s and 50s, I think. I mean, the actuality was in the 30s that uh, uh, suburban development had stopped at, at around its current limits and so you could ride out into what we now think of as the green belt. And people did this in um, in cycling clubs. And yes, you, you took yes, a look. Did, you took yeah. a look at a couple of um, very different cycling clubs. Yes, <laughs> I looked at um, I looked at the well-established um, Catford um, Cycling Club, which um, you know some of your listeners may be familiar familiar with, and been established for in, in that first boom of uh, Victorian cycling. So I, I looked at uh, uh, their ride outs into the countryside and their special um, hill climbing events. And, uh, you know, so they are very, very organised, um, very established, and with quite a working-class membership, um, very broad in the sort of people they attracted. And I also looked at um, the Surrey Cycling Club, which was a, a established as a private members club for 25 males of good, of good character. Uh, and they were in, unintentionally hilarious as a, as a group of people with a very, um, very pompous, they set themselves up in order to try and to exclude working-class cyclists. And um, uh, I, I was following their adventures in a photo book, which was uh, held at uh, the, the Modern Records Centre at Warwick University, where I found it. And uh, my favourite photograph is one of their members flicking a V-sign at the photographer when uh, they're sitting in, the, in one of their rideouts. So they didn't quite get the sort of um, classy people they were aiming for. 
<laughs> so that's quite interesting that there were different clubs for different kind of people. Yes, well, I think that um, the the cycling clubs um, were were working class, uh, lower middle class uh, generally. I, I've what I've done in order to sort of work this out, I've looked at the, the uh, addresses of the secretaries of all the cycling clubs. It's a bit sorry, it's a bit nerdy this, but um, this is how I did it. So there were hundreds of cycling clubs in the London area. So I've looked at where the secretary lived and then used the, you know, the wonders of Google Maps to find out what sort of house he lived in. And by finding out what sort of house he lived in, so uh, eight railway cuttings, East Cheam, I could see, yeah, that's a, um, a small terraced house or that's a, uh, occasionally a three-bedroom semi. And so I could, I could from that uh, get a clear indication of sort of the, the class of the people who were organising these clubs. And they were almost always uh, lower middle class Sorry, being a bit classist, isn't it? Categorizing well, describe maybe maybe what their professions might be. What do you mean by lower middle class in terms of you know type of um, work or what makes someone lower middle class? Oh God, yeah, that's an entirely different program, isn't it? Really, but it's um, uh, bank clerks, um, salesmen, uh, shop workers. So this is very much the H.G. Wells wheels of chance hoop driver type of um, cyclist. From, yeah. familiar from the, the 1900s. Yes, it's right. It's uh, it, you know, it's the, they're the the sons of the sort of boisterous clerks of uh, you know of history, of Mr. Polly, or or is that or is that Kipps? I'm not quite sure. One of those H.G. Wells books, anyway. It's uh, um, so yeah, they are people working in white collar uh, industries and working in offices. One of the big phenomena of the 1930s was the growth in offices uh, and changing technology. Um, you know, making administration, central administration, a huge aspect of London life, and so you, you, get, you get that's and they're the sort of people who could afford to buy the semi-detached houses which form suburbia. And so they'd have their bike, they'd use it at the weekends to go out in the countryside. Were they sporting cyclists? Were they involved in racing, or were they just simply going out to enjoy the fresh air, stopping at a pub, um, stopping at a couple of churches to have a look around, or whatever there might be out there that's interesting to take a look at in a kind of classic cycle touring. Mentality. Yeah, most of the people that I uh, research were tourists. You know, they're, they're both. You know, so tourists can be qu- people who do everyday cycling, and they can, and tourists can be people who race as well. Um, so um, it's hard to delineate them. But most of the people I research were people who are doing what you think of as the classic touring. And let's talk about the roads that all these cyclists, the, whether they're recreational or whether they're um, um, cycling for, for for getting to work uh, or going to the shops. How how much did cycling? change with the changes of the roads in, the, in that time because we've got the car coming along you know the, the growth of the car is presumably quite dramatic during this period as you say everyone's getting richer the mass production means that cars are getting cheaper the roads have to be changed improved to accommodate the cars how did that impact on the experience of um of cycling one of the interesting things that happened in the London, London in the 1930s was the building of the arterial road programme, which is still with us today. I mean, famously, you see it uh, in the Kingston Bypass, Great West Road, Western Avenue, Eastern Avenue, North Circular Road. All those roads were, were built as uh, eventually as dual carriageways in the 1930s as fast motor roads to try and get past the sort of traffic jams of uh, you know, the outer little towns like you know, Bromley and Kingston and Edgware. So you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't get snarled up in a high street. You'd just be able to cruise on on an arterial road. That's the idea. And particularly, uh, so the Kingston Bypass meant you can get to from, from London to Portsmouth quickly. So there's a sort of a, um, you know, military aspect to it as well because of the naval base there. One of the things which surprised me uh, about this particular story was how early it was. And the first, claim, you know, the first campaigns for trying to do something about the uh, outer, outer little market towns being jammed up was as early as about 1905. 
And if it hadn't been for the First World War, we'd have had a road building, building program much earlier than we did. It sort of started in about 1928. But the problem wasn't, and this, so the, the problem about jammed up uh, town centres wasn't really caused by cars at all. It was about bicycles, trams, horse-drawn vehicles, all jamming up narrow streets of little market towns. And it was only when the car arrived that they realised that, you know, that's only going to make it a thousand times worse. And so they eventually, after the First World War, started building fast motor roads. And, of course, cyclists, as you might imagine, were uh, attracted to the smooth surfaces and um, careful gradients of these new roads. So you got the, as you would expect, uh, the usual sort of contention between um, car owners with their, paying their road fund tax and um, uh, the cyclists who apparently were using them for fr- these roads for free. Because unlike today, there was a road fund that was paid for by taxes, paid by car drivers, That's car right. owners, mm. uh, whereas now they're sort of paid for by general taxation, although plenty of uh, car drivers Still aren't do. aware of that. Yes. Um, <laughs> did cyclists feel that they were being pushed aside or did they just welcome these free, smooth, flat roads with open arms and just say, this is great? Well, most of the arterial roads, certainly in the late in the 30s, were built with um, cycle tracks. And the, the intention was, you know, for the safety of cyclists to separate the two grades of, of traffic so that the cyclists would be on the uh, cycle path and the cars would be on the, on, the, on the arterial road. Did you Just, take a look at these cycle tracks? What were they like? They were um, uh, wide, about uh, you know, a couple of metres wide uh, on the Western Avenue. Uh, they eventually got well constructed, but when they were first built, they were um, you know, potholed and a bit rough, and um, cyclists, as they do today, um, preferred to um, uh, ride on the road. So, so the, the car drivers were getting this lovely new road mm-hmm. and then the cyclists were being given a kind of pothole margin. Yes. Is that how it was? It was, yeah, on some roads. And uh, you, you get uh, uh, cyclists at the time complaining about that in the papers or in their, in their, in their diaries. And, of course, you've got the problem, which is with us today on cycle paths, which it, it works fine until you get to a junction. And, um, you know, then it becomes very contentious and, and difficult and quite dangerous to sort of um, navigate a, a junction or a roundabout when you, when you come off the cycle path. And so in those days, as now were motor cars given the or the main carriageway were given the priority over the cycle track? Yeah, but it was it was contested by um, uh, organised um, uh, cyclists and who would um, occasionally hold demonstrations by uh, riding out in club formation on the arterial roads, holding up the traffic. Uh, to protest uh, about the um, about the use um, of, about the, the roads being exclusively for cars. Well, then, so this is like critical mass, but in the 1930s. Yeah. So their argument was that uh, we had the roads before the car car was invented. We have a right as Englishmen. Apologies to Scottish and Welsh listeners here, but we have a, a right as Englishmen to the road, which um, you know is reflected as very Edwardian idea, which um, reached its apogee in uh, Baden Powell, who encouraged people to. Um, uh, he, he didn't like the idea of safety first, and he encouraged people to step onto the road, regardless of whether a car was coming or not. And he, he sort of assigned a masculinity and Britishness to step straight onto the road without looking. I think he might have got slightly mad by that point. Though. And so that viewpoint did translate into an opposition, an outright opposition to cycle tracks from the leading cyclist organisation, the Cyclist Touring Club, who felt that... Well, what did they feel? What, why, did they, why did they oppose? We know that they opposed them, but what was the... What was the, what was the their reasoning? Because it sounds like they're opposing something that's, you know, if we could have it now, it would be great. No, I think it, it was a, a philosophical uh, argument, which was that um, um, cyclists had a right to use the road. And that once that started, the government attempted to limit where cyclists could go. That was uh, um, impeding on um, what they considered to be a basic freedom 
of, of an Englishman who, which is the reason why I mentioned Baden Powell, which is that uh, you know that an Englishman enjoyed the right to the road, and uh, that uh, it shouldn't be infringed upon. And uh, by providing cycle paths, they were it's a sort of one step in uh, denying cyclists the ability to um, uh, of any Englishman's right to to get onto the road. And I don't know if this is um, this is your your job, but do you think we can say that? They called that one wrong now. If we look at um, our country and we look at, again, as I say, across the North Sea to the Netherlands where they've got cycle tracks everywhere and they're very good and there are lots of cycling and cycling's much safer over there. Did the CTC get that wrong? Well, yes, I think they, they probably did, didn't they? It's, um, I cycled in Copenhagen recently, which you can cycle from the, from the little out, outer suburbs right in the middle of the town without touching a junction. It's fantastic. If they'd accepted that um, uh, cycle paths were the norm on all new roads, I guess that became and had become an established principle of the 30s. Maybe every single new road built since then would have had cycle paths as a part of its design. And that would, be, would have been different. So ultimately what happened was that the transport planners just said, OK, well, the cyclists don't want the cycle lane. That means we don't have to bother with them. And they yeah, can just fend for themselves amongst the cars, which ultimately they decided once the level of traffic reached a, you know, a critical point that... You couldn't cycle on a on a major arterial road because it was just too unpleasant. Yeah, I and mean, providing cycle paths was was tedious and expensive for um, local authorities because they had to build a much wider margin. They had to buy a much wider margin of road off local landowners, and um, you know it's much more much more construction work. So they'd rather not do it. And I guess they got out of the habit. So we talked about the various um, sources and, and clever bits of historical research that you've done to, uh, to un- unearth this interesting time. Um, but there's a character that, that leaps off the pages of, of, of your book, of the chapter on, on cycling in, in suburban London, a, a guy called John Sowerby, although that was his pen name. Tell us about John Sowerby. He was a really uh, fascinating man who was an inveterate everyday cyclist who would cycle out, who would ride out on his own, 30, 40, 50 miles a day, you know, every day of his life if he could, and would attempt to try and, and get thousands of, thousands of miles of uh, cycling under his belt. He was born in uh, 1882, fought in the First World War, invalided out, um, and then caught TB. And so he was um, um, near, pretty near death in a, in a TB hospital, but w- was determined to try and keep riding. Eventually recovered enough to be able to, um, to ride, and basically kept himself going by a series of odd, job, odd jobs, working in pubs and cafes, things like that, just enough to be able to allow him to buy a bike, maintain it, and just have enough food to be able to cycle around. And where I, I first came across him, he was um, living, in a, uh, he's living in suburban uh, London, in Surbiton, in, his, in a shed in his sister's garden with his bike. And he unusually, very unusually for the time, recorded all his cycle, all his ride-outs, and in, into a diary, and which were eventually published uh, in a very surprising outcome. So yeah, how did I mean? He sounds like he's a kind of sort of eccentric, a real eccentric. That how did this book end up being being published? Well, his psychiatrist, you know, who um, met him at, uh, at hospital, got talking about it, found that he had a diary, got to read it. He sent them to uh, a literary magazine called the London Mercury in 1938, who published some extracts, and for a very brief period. People were, were, you know, fascinated, interested in him, and uh, he published his diaries in uh, in book form, and then, you know, lost in the mists of time. After that, we never hear about him again. So we just we just get a snapshot of his views of of being out on his bike in 1937 and 1938. 
fantastically for, for my purposes. A lot of what he experiences is his interactions with the new suburban world of the arterial road and how, how it felt like to cycle alongside cars and lorries and um, what it's like to ride through the suburbs and ride out into countryside. So this is kind of gold dust for you because he is just a, 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 an everyday sort of person. I mean, he's an unusual person, but he's just a guy who's out there on the roads and recording ordinary stuff. I mean, that's what's interesting about him, isn't it? He's not recording stuff that's extraordinary. He's recording stuff that's ordinary, and that makes him valuable to a historian. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, it's... Uh in one of the points I make in my book is that how you know the ordinary cycling is by very it's a, it's very definition. You don't bother writing down writing it down, and you don't record it in your diaries. And I've been through a lot of um, you know oral histories. You know, I thought, well, I'll just type in bicycle, and I'm sure I'll get a you know a thousand hits back. But it was so normalised. You wouldn't mention turning the TV on nowadays, or you wouldn't you wouldn't say, oh, I looked at my mobile phone because it's just so integrated into our everyday lives. It's not worth recording, and so people didn't. And so to find that source. Uh, very unusual. It was, it was fantastic. So we've got some extracts um, from the uh, from the diaries of John Sowerby, which was the pen name of uh, of Percival Bennett. Per- That's right, Percy, Percy Bennett. Bennett. Yes. I mean, he was a really uh, unusual man. I mean, because of his TB, he was slight. He was a small, slight man. He was seven stone uh, by the time he recovered from uh, his TB. Didn't eat very much, and he could. He was capable of sixty, seventy mile rides a day. Very slow speed always being passed by faster, younger cyclists and, you know, pushing on in, um, in all, con- all, all weathers and wearing rather eccentric um, shorts and beret and um, sun visor. You know, he must look quite a sight. So let's get to, um, let's get to his diaries. Do you want to introduce um, the extracts? He, he's quite, in some ways, he wasn't afraid in his diaries to, to suggest how lonely he was. And, um, you know, he, he was obviously quite a singular uh, individual. Sowerby writes about... Uh, uh, encountering other cyclists, but it, it's always it, it's always very sad because he's always at a distance from them. He's never really part of a group, and he sort of observes them in um, tea huts and you know a place of where uh, cyclists congregate on on Sundays. To Rygate and Redhill, turn left at Signals and up the London Road through Merston. Long upgrades here, but not steep. Soon into Hooley, just beyond which is my objective. The super tea hut, full of lorry and van drivers weekdays, but swarming with cyclists and a few motorists Sundays. Cycles all over the show outside, so I park mine against the window where I can see it all the time. I sit with a crowd of London boy cyclists, who, like thousands more, are making their way home from the coast. There's some money left going by what they're eating. A supremely happy lot, although I detect some signs of fatigue in the young ones. They've bundles and blankets on their bikes and probably seen no bed since Friday night. That's fascinating, isn't it? Describing it. It's hard to imagine. I mean, I suppose you do see a lot of cyclists out at the weekend, but the idea of thousands coming back from the coast with bundles and blankets on their bikes, I mean, it's a tremendous picture. Yes, it's, uh, and you can see it in the newsreels of the periods, although you have to be a bit, as an historian, I have to be sort of careful about, uh, uh, even Sabi, he has a fantastic sort, of course, you know, worth the thousands, we don't know. It's just his uh, uh, very ordinary lit- literary style. Um, and when you see newsreel items about cyclists, you have to think. Well, hold on. There's a newsreel camera there. Exactly how real is the thing we're seeing? We're, we're seeing. So it's a bit. It's hard to tell. I have looked at um, um, surveys of uh, of cyclists on arterial roads, and we, you know, it is possible to see that cycling grew. So on a on a on a nice Sunday, you'd get by 1938 probably about twice as many cyclists as you would have done by the early 30s. So as it as it came up to the Second World War, cycling was really growing in um, popularity, and was becoming much more universal. Anyway, a little bit more loneliness from, from John. 
he describes a visit to um, Croydon Airport, another area I'm sort of fascinated in for different reasons. Went on to the flying ground. By the time I got to the hotel, a deluge came on. I got round the back by the garden place and found some sort of shelter where I had a couple of cyclists for company. Oh, how we talked and talked. It was so pleasant that we forgot all about the rain, having ceased for ages. We had so much to talk about. Cycles and tours and all kinds of things. Thus are cycling friendships made. And to a lonely rider as I am, they are very happy little meetings too. John uh, went on to describe his relationship with his bike, which is, which is odd and a bit untouching. The poor bike suffers the most. It's the dearest friend I have, but I show it no mercy on the hills. <laughs> That's a great idea. Showing your bike no mercy. Oh. Yeah, one of the uh, unusual things I think about uh, John Serby at the time was that uh, he uh, quite welcomed cars, lorries, and despite the fact that uh, you know they could cause him harm uh, and they made it diff- life difficult for cyclists, he was fascinated by them and also by the um, the arterial roads and the new buildings along the arterial roads. So here is he talking about um, passing a, a, a car which had been an accident. Then on to Kingswood, passing a badly smashed up car which had been pulled off the road and abandoned. I don't know. I only know it always hurts me to see a thing that is a marvel of mechanical ingenuity, all smashed up and made useless. Somebody has had their joyful anticipation dashed away today and somebody robbed of their means of transport. I hate to see these poor wrecks. Many cars take my side of the road and drive me into the gutter and over the gratings there and I'm horrified and shocked at their lack of manners. But when I see them broken up, I forget all that and only feel sorry for them. Still, it's good to be on the road at all, especially these great arterial roads and bypasses with plenty of traffic. Keeps one alive. Swarms of coaches, buses, lorries and smaller fry all around one, and if one day one hit me out, well, I've enjoyed the company ever since they came into being, and the roads will be dull indeed without them. The more politically minded will rave about quiet lanes and byways. Well, they are very beautiful, and I admire beauty as much as anybody. But give me the main roads and great highways really to enjoy cycling in. Well, that's a very uh, unusual view isn't it from a cyclist yeah no he was um you know it's a bit difficult to know what to do with him really as a historical source because you know he's both fascinating and um you know clearly very atypical but i'm not really writing history which i'm not really writing a narrative history of cycling um Mm. what i'm trying to do is get quite an impressionistic idea of how some cyclists sarby and maybe one or two others thought of themselves as uh as being modern and being a cyclist. I mean, we've, we've sort of drifted into the trap, and it's probably my fault, of talking about cyclists and drivers, which is a very real trap these days. I mean, I think more people who ride bikes also have driving licences today than the general population has driving licences. So are the same people who are riding bikes at the weekend, say, in one of these clubs, also driving a car? Yeah, that's hard to answer. Probably not so much in the 30s, in that... Um a car driver might well be a member of uh, a touring club where he, he would use the bike as um, I mean, for sporting purposes. That would be socially acceptable. Owning a car meant that you no longer had to use a motorcycle or a bike to get around. So that, that provided, made you look classy. It was only OK if you were cycling for sporting purposes because that was quite gentlemanly. So that, that was socially acceptable. If you look at uh, the membership of cycling clubs, generally there would have been some crossover and a lot of working-class people had access to cars in the 1930s too, and some lower-middle-class people. But um, probably, if I had to guess, I'd say uh, of ordinary cyclists who are member of cycle clubs, probably about 10% might have had cars, something like that. So cycling's on the up. 
both in terms of ownership of bicycles and in terms of the use of bicycles. Your researchers have found that out. Do you think that the cyclists of that era had any idea that this might all end as it did in the sort of 1960s into 1970s, this this whole um, world of, of cycling just disappeared, particularly in the suburbs? It would have come as a complete surprise. You know, one of the things personally I feel very, I feel fascinated by in the 30s is that, that we know how the story ends. And it's true about cycling, but it's particularly true about their lives because about what was, what was about to happen in the, the Second World War. I like the sort of um, their naivety and innocence that uh, they're imagining that things would continue as they were. But of course, by 1938, it is obvious to many people that that wasn't going to happen. And so I see 1938 as that last year of that sort of golden period where people could live in a sort of innocent lives. So why didn't it turn out that way? I mean, there's the Second World War, but how did that impact on day-to-day life in the suburbs? The experience of, of, of the Second World War had a dramatic effect on the civilian population of London uh, in terms of the blitz uh, and bombings in the suburbs, you get V1s and V2s in the suburbs. So that changed the topography of London a bit and, it, and, it's, uh, and the need um, to reconstruct in the, in, the, in the late 40s. But, of course, the, the cost of financing the Second World War to the British economy, you know, the level of debt which left us with uh, uh, the United States, meant that um, effectively we really didn't recover that consumerist economy till about 1957, 58 where people were start, suddenly started you know, rationing a finish and people started buying cars again and the cars weren't just made for export. I guess people started buying bikes again too. But so actually we get this period from 1938 to 1958, where 20 years where all the things we, that might have happened in terms of uh, growing consumerism just didn't. And so we've got that sort of um, lost period. You know, so as a historian, I'm trying to make a connection between 1938 and 1958 rather than you know, 1938 and 1939, if that makes sense. And so the people that you're looking at, the people that you're most interested in, if you took them in a time machine to now, to the same places where they live, what, what do you think they would think of, um, of those places, the suburban areas of London? They would be horrified, I would say. I mean, I'd love to do the journey the opposite way around. I'd love to, if I could, I'd love to go in a time machine back to the 1930s and, uh, and see what that, was, what that was like. I mean, to give you uh, one illustration of that... In 1933, say, when uh, new arterial roads were being built, people had to pay more to buy a house facing the arterial road. They were more expensive because you got a view of the cars going past. And we just picture that today when you're driving down, you know, the Kingston Bypass, you know, the semi-detached houses on either side of the road, and the noise and the smells, and the, you know, and you know, how disgusting it is. And if they're thrown forward 70 or 80 years, uh, they'd be astonished just to see, you know, how the volumes of traffic had increased, so, you know, 10 times as many cars and how the whole suburbs had become, you know, enthralled to the car. You know, and what, what I'm saying is really that that domination of suburbia by the car began earlier than people think it did. It wasn't a 1950s thing at all. It was actually a 1930s thing. That process was starting. And, you know, people noticing it, but I think they just... I think we're all a bit astonished to find out exactly how many cars there are in Britain. It just doesn't seem possible, does it? And would they change their view of the car? Um, No, everyone loves cars. We all pretend that we don't like them, but we keep buying them. I can understand that why people now are, because that's what you've got to have. But I guess what I'm thinking about is the people of the 1930s who you're describing, Mm -hmm. in a time when the suburbs weren't overrun with cars, Mm -hmm. they would have had their garden, they would have had their tranquility, they'd have had their quiet... Would they give all of that up for automobility in 2015 terms? 
Or would they just think, actually, that's not a price worth paying for all the things that we enjoy about the suburbs, the the peace and the quiet and the cleanliness and, and the sociability and the golf club and the tennis club and all that kind of stuff? That has been diminished by, uh, by 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 motor domination. Well, it's interesting. The golf club and the tennis club were both places where you really had to arrive by car. I would say I think people pretty much are all stay the same largely, even over a period of a hundred years. And people wanted cars as soon as they could afford them. As soon as they could afford them, they bought them. That's true now, and it was true then. And I think that um, they would have um, they'd have sucked it up if they could have done. People like being warm, dry, pretty safe, and they like going around in their families in cars. And that's uh, that was true in the 30s. It's true now. And where do you see the suburbs going in the future? I mean, I've talked about needing to know where you've come from to know where you're going. You're a historian. You look backwards, but you know you must look forward as well in, in your own in your own imagination. A personal view is I, I'd like I'd like to see um, you know more transport infrastructure in the in the suburbs. I'd like to see more trams. And light rail, and uh, and you can see it happening a little bit in um, Croydon and places like that. And um, I think it does have an impact. I'd like to uh, not use the car to make small journeys, and uh, the public transport would be sufficiently universal that you wouldn't need to make take, take a car for a small journey. I think that's the thing that really kills the suburbs is that people will take a car for a journey of a mile. And then, of course, you get that you know sort of uh, bonus effect. Of course, as soon as people start doing that, it becomes safer to cycle. And if there's more more provision for cy- for cyclists, then they make other small journeys in good weather on on cycles, and um, we live in a much more virtuous world. That'd be fantastic. Well, let's hope it happens. Dr. John Law, research fellow at the Department of Social History and Historical Studies at the University of Westminster, thank you for joining me. Your book, The Experience of Suburban Modernity, How Private Transport Changed Interwar London, is published by Manchester University Press and available at the princely sum, but well worth it, of £75. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about it for free. Yeah, that's fine. Actually, you can get on Amazon for about £53, which is, you know, what a bargain. (laughs) Thanks very much, John. (laughs) 